everyone. Welcome to Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. Our guest today will be Tracy Tritz, choreographer of Dracula, and Dr. Stephen Kandow, professor of music at University of St. Francis. We'll be discussing Dracula, music, and Alfred Schnitka. Tracy, how are you? I'm good. Welcome back to Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. Dracula, you created the ballet and Fort Wayne Ballet premiere was in 2020. Yes. We're bringing it back for the 22-23 season. So the second time around sometimes gives new perspective. Are there things you're noticing, seeing differently or noticing in a different way this time around? Yes, absolutely. I was actually really excited to be able to revisit it again in a fairly short time span because we have a lot of dancers who are returning for roles and it gives them a better chance to deep dive into the role and the character. It also gives me a chance to maybe look at things a little bit differently and tweak some things that I saw the last time that I knew I would maybe do a little bit differently and and look at it from a little bit different perspective after seeing that. And in terms of characterization, like you said, some of the dancers have been in these roles before and some are new. How has that changed the dynamic? Um, it's been actually quite interesting because it gives us a chance to go back and refresh the story for some of the characters and where it is very close to the book and where we've had to make artistic changes to make it work on stage. So everyone's gotten a little bit back of the, the Dracula history lesson so the new characters could feel comfortable in their roles as well. Well, that segues well into the next question. We talked about it in 2020. So when you're working with a piece that has such strong recognition, whether people know the story well or think they know the story, there are challenges as it unfolds. You mentioned your foundation is the book. How do you also see your production and what roots you in terms of your storytelling for this particular program, as opposed to maybe uh, some others in terms of this particular work? I think most of the other ballets that I have seen anyway actually take more artistic freedom with the story, much more like the movies. So there's many different ways of telling Dracula in the movies. So I actually really wanted to stay close to the book because of this. And I've read the book actually several times, even throughout the process, because there's a lot of things that you maybe don't always get the first time or stands out to you a little bit more as you read through it. So it's very definitely deeply rooted in the book, and I did try to stay as true to it as possible, but as with anything that you adapt to stage or screen, it has to have changes. So there were some parts in the telling of the love stories and the the dynamics between the character of Dracula and the two leading females and the stories between some of the the old friends that are in this book together that you can't quite tell as well as you could if you were in a movie or in a novel. So I had to take a little bit of changes to build that camaraderie with them. But yeah, I think it turned out well. Well, in staying on that line of storytelling, libretto has taken a very different turn in the last couple of decades based on the story that people will use to create whatever the ballet may be, and very different than maybe 50 years ago or, or longer. There's also been a return to the libretto with telling a story as opposed to just the repertoire and the repertory ballet. So with that, what challenges and opportunities do you see about telling a story that has such a heavy change in terms of what people's perspective are in terms of maybe a perceived libretto? Is that an opportunity? Is that a challenge? I, I look at some of the ballets that have been done, everything from Wizard of Oz to La Caja Fall to a variety of other things that 50 years ago, no one would have thought about putting that on stage as a main stage. But again, this pattern is emerging and evolving. So when you look at that, do you think that's a good thing for ballet? Do you see it as an opportunity? Is it just a challenge? How do you put your head around all of that? 
I think it's a great thing. You know, just like we advance in movies and theaters with our capabilities of what we can do, we'll say the quote unquote special effects. Uh, I think that we have the opportunity to do more and more of taking books that seemed almost an impossibility to put into the form of dance with no words and continue to be able to tell the story in a way that's easy for people to follow and easy for them to understand and gives a completely different take on it and spin and perspective for people having to see it that way. So I think it's absolutely great. It makes me really excited because there's even movies that weren't necessarily books, but were movies that I would love to adapt to ballets. And now that we have the capability of doing that a little bit more with special effects and lighting and really cool stage props that people can build, it's exciting. Well, and taking that another step further, talking about elements you can use to help tell the story music. Music is very tied into Mm -hmm. being able to tell the story and can help immensely depending on what's chosen. So talk about your choice of composer, the music, and and how it fits in with your creation of the piece. So when I first knew that I was going to be taking this journey with Dracula, I had a few composers in mind that I was kind of choosing between. Shostakovich was one of them. Schnitka was one of them. And that's the the person that I ended up going with was Alfred Schnitka. And then George Crumb was another one Mm -hmm. that I looked at for some music. But I really needed a, a really broad depth of music. And Schnitka has an incredible library of music because he did so much work, not only in composing for orchestras, but also for film and television, that his music is just amazingly dynamic across the board, beautiful ballads to just crazy dark music, which is great for this particular ballet when you have really lovely scenes of a young girl getting proposed to by wonderful young gentlemen and all the way to dark vampire scenes. So I really landed on him fairly easily. I would say it was probably my go-to from the beginning, but I wanted to just look around. um, And the depth of his work made it a very clear choice for me. Well, and early in his career, his tie in terms of Shostakovich and influences and various Mm -hmm. things, you see the similarities. When you think about what you mentioned, his experience as a film composer, how do you think that translates to somebody like Shostakovich while not completely not involved in any type of film situation, but not readily seen as you know, like corn gold is you know yes. seen in that situation. So there's a very intentional. I'm composing for film as opposed to you use my music. How do you see that translating well to something that really is sort of like a movie in the sense that you're telling a story and it's movement and it has to meld. I actually felt that it was perfect. Like having the film work interspersed in with some of the other um, orchestral work, I thought was really great, especially in some of these scenes where it was more movie-like of the telling the story of Lucy getting proposed to and these beautiful pas de dos and, you know, the reunion of the Harkers together after Jonathan comes back. And it made such an interesting juxtaposition to the really dark parts of the ballet. So I actually really loved the use. Most of my use of his movie work is actually the the prettier, softer parts of the ballet instead of the, the really dark and kind of crazy mm. parts of the ballet. Well, that answers more of my other questions because I was going to say what maybe was a favorite revelation this time around as you've lived with it a little more related to the created product and the, the melding of the music and the choreography. So that's interesting that that's sort of maybe something now that just has become sort of your favorite piece. And with that, knowing the story, having seen the ballet in 2020, just a quick follow-up question as we sort of end this segment uh, with you. In your mind, does the ballet, does the way you tell the story and the way you stay with the story with the book, does it conclude the story or does it leave an opening for the possibility of the story continuing? 
I think you could leave a possibility for the story continuing. Uh, it really does end in the book, and there's no coming back for it with the particular end in the book for those that have read it. But I think in this case with the ballet, there could be some sort of a very artistically open sequel that could come from it, yes. Well, we'll leave that open for the possibility of, of whatever that sequel might be uh, <laughs> retitled in the future. Tracy, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Next up, our producer, John Dawkins, has a conversation with University of St. Francis professor of music, Stephen Kandau, about Alfred Schnitka. Hello, and welcome to a special sub-segment of Kinetic Conversations. You don't normally hear my voice on this podcast. I'm John Dawkins, and I'm a producer. And please forgive my voice. I seem to have misplaced it. Today, as we look ahead to the Fort Wayne Ballet's production of Dracula, we are examining the music of our production's composer, Alfred Schnitka. Schnitka is a Russian contemporary composer, gaining renown in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the genre of polystylism. He's known for several important orchestral pieces and scored over 60 films and television programs. And his flout for more traditional composition earned him an unfair reputation as a radical in the eyes of the Soviet government. He passed away in 1998. Joining us in our discussion virtually from his home in Michigan is Dr. Stephen Kandau. Dr. Kandau serves as instructor of music at the University of St. Francis, where he has taught courses on the music of film and video games, as well as orchestration and arranging. He specializes in the study of quarter-tonal music and holds degrees from Michigan State University and Central Michigan University. And on a personal note, he was my film scoring professor. Dr. Kandal, welcome to Kinetic Conversations. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat a bit about the incredible Alfred Schnitka today. The thing that really comes to my mind as I listen to Schnitka is how much his work sounds like modern film composing. Yes. His polystylism breaks away from the traditional composition and has a feel of the erratic with abrupt style changes and random notes and chords. It feels to me like there should be a visual component, like the music is constantly being pulled in a new direction by something that the audience can't see. Mm -hmm. I feel like these qualities contribute some very interesting things to choreography, but what's your take on this and, and how did Schnitka develop this type of style? You know, one of the big things about him is the fact that he was a film score composer, yeah. right? So yeah. like that in and of itself is going to have impact on his non-film score compositions. But I mean, like in general, and you know, that we'll definitely, you know, it's, it's worth chatting about this. Like at the time that he started film scoring, right? Like there were some examples, right? Like he did have mm -hmm. potentially access to some other film score examples, but his primary sources for how he was setting music to drama came from opera, incidental music for plays, and mm -hmm. relevant to this discussion, ballet. He cites Alban Berg as a source. And so I can't help but when I listen to some of Schnitka's music, I think, oh, that's that's just like Wozzeck. Some of Berg's more powerful dissonant moments in his opera Wozzeck. Or the big one for me, again, connecting it to ballet, is you know Schnitka comments on Stravinsky, as a significant source of compositional inspiration, right? When you think about like the Rite of Spring, which basically, you know, several historians argue launched us into the modernist era. You can debate that depending on where around the world you are, right? But like in terms of, I would say, 
Russian and Soviet identity, Stravinsky is right up there in terms of significance. And Alex Ross, who is one of the individuals who's written quite a bit about Stravinsky and the Rite of Spring and its impact and kind of you know, there's pre and post Rite of Spring in terms of kind of like German opera, they talk about pre and post Wagner, right? right? Like for Ross, he talks about pre and post Rite of Spring and how the Rite of Spring is arguably one of the most significant pieces kind of changed the landscape of music history in the 20th century. And I think Schnicka knew that very well. He knew the significance of that. And it's very much reflected in a lot of how he would then match music to drama. I think a lot of that, like you, you and I have talked in our emails about like the scare factor or like those poignant moments, right? Where you have these percussive punctuations. I mean, that that to me, I think all the way back to like when I talk about in my music appreciation class, the Rite of Spring is a very percussive piece. And it was beastly challenging for the choreographer to get the dancers to want to dance to the music. Yeah. Because, right, you're, you'll switch from like 716 meter to 516 meter and bounce back and forth between that. You have all these complicated time signatures and the actual like punctuated kits matching what the choreography is asking for. To me, a lot of that kind of like hitting the cue, as, as it's sometimes called, comes from uh, moments like that. I bring up Stravinsky quite a bit because... I think it's a good parallel. You know, you look at films like Fantasia, Fantasia 2000, right? And both of those films take the approach of, okay, Stravinsky wrote Firebird and Rite of Spring for a ballet, right? He had a specific story that he was having to tell with his music. So he takes the story, he makes the music, and then you have this project like Fantasia or Fantasia 2000, that then takes that music and creates a new story with it. And so when, when you talk to me about the, the Dracula project, that process was kind of what I thought about as well, right? Like some of the music that Tracy has selected has pre-existing story, right? A couple of the suites that, that she's selected that are suites of music from Schnitka's film compositions, right? And so we've kind of repurposed those in a way where they help to tell a, a different story, right? But in a way that's effective, in a way that already has those kind of those beats attached to them of having cues and, and moments and what's going on in the film where the music is helping with that. I think all of that kind of cyclically ties together, right? The idea that music and drama that wasn't birthed in film, right? That you have these genres that come before it and that those things very much had an impact on how Schnitka would then go into film scoring, which of course then had an impact on his later compositions as well. Tracy has said that's one of the reasons why she picked that music because of the percussive spontaneous mm -hmm. elements and things. It was very easy to uh, put these moments of like, you know, a character lunging out of the darkness or something like that. And uh, choreographing a ballet is a lot like film scoring in reverse. You're adding movement to the specific points. And it just yes. makes it so much more interesting when you have these little exciting moments in the music that can be responded to with the action. Oh, absolutely. I mean, talking about his polystylism, right? Like you have so many options available to you, right? Like his Concerto Grosso number one, you know, this the second movement you have, right, that Takata, and then it starts very much like a Baroque it's very calm and peaceful. And it, it just kind of emulates a bygone era. And then we get all these, the stretto where you have the Takata themes literally stacked on top of itself. And if you actually look at the score, like it's very visually stunning. It's like watching a descending uh, 
almost like levels of waterfalls just cascading down because you'll have like the soloist that'll start a figure and then they're echoed a beat later by the next soloist and then like the first violins and the second violins and so on and so forth. And they're just displaced sometimes by a beat, sometimes by less than that. And so you have the exact same idea just stacked like 10, 20 fold on top of itself. It's it's definitely a piece that I would say requires, if you can, there's a great YouTube video where it shows the score and it has the recording. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage checking that out because it's just, it's so neat to kind of just kind of watch that cascade down the page, that effect. So you have this very peaceful, like almost like we've stepped back like 300, you know, 250, 300 years in time. And then it just blows up into this like, you know, postmodernistic dissonance of just saying, oh, I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm just, I'm just going to stack this on top itself. Well, you have, I think in a later movement in that piece, I think it's the fifth movement. Yeah, it's the rondo. You have a tango that just randomly shows up. <laughs> in, 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 the, in the middle of the piece it's a, yeah. it's a, it's this got this very like vivaldi-esque start to it and then there's like this middle episodic material that's you know got this uh, the harpsichord tangoing throughout things and it's just it's very it's very entertaining and i you know it's funny because in terms of the use of the term polystylism um there's there's been suggestion that schnicke was you know one of the one of the first composers to actually use that term regularly to describe himself. And there's like a whole essay that he wrote where he kind of retroactively said, <laughs> and these composers that existed before, they're also polystylistic. And those composers probably would have never labeled themselves that way. And I believe those composers include, I think, Stravinsky's on the list, Shostakovich, Berg, just many early 20th century composers where that labeling, I don't believe, as far as I know, was prevalent. And yet Schnicke just comes along and says, yeah, based on what I'm doing and based on what these composers are doing, they were polystylistic composers as well. He really embraced that labeling of what he was doing. So it was definitely deliberate. And I think because of that, it is a strong defining characteristic of his compositional output, for sure. Could you uh, take a moment, explain what polystylism is? In its most basic sense, right, polystylism is a style of artistry where you're using multiple styles and techniques on a regular basis. And Schnicke utilized the term frequently, but you could argue that there are many composers that are themselves polystylistic in their approach. In fact, I would argue that many film score composers by necessity are polystylistic composers because of the fact that within one project, right, they have to bounce around from perhaps this beautiful romanticized aria-like scene segueing to some very bombastic, dissonant, percussive moments. So I think it, it was something that Schnitka, I don't think he coined it necessarily, but he wrote extensively about it. But it very much is a characteristic a deliberate stylistic approach in composition where the composer is trying to utilize as many styles as possible. And sometimes we'll actually layer those styles on top of each other at the same time. And that really is, I think, the defining characteristic of Schnitka is you have these moments where you have multiple styles, not just within, say, a movement of a work, but you have them literally happening at the same time. I could definitely see that in uh, the uh, Concerto Grosso. Which I might just mention too, the opening movement of the Concerto Grosso Number no. 1 is also the opening movement of our ballet. Uh, that's where Dracula begins. And that is the one piece that Tracy used all of, but she did it out of order. She did it in, in different places in the ballet. But yeah, the opening uh, kind of 
off-key piano. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The prepared piano. Yeah. It's what one of the things I love about the Concerto Grosso as a as an overall work is I like to think that Schnitka represents the journey that classical music has taken over the course of I would say several centuries both in the sense of how it's developed, but in the fact that he also gives you snippets from all those time periods. And what I love about the opening of this piece is the bringing in of the prepared piano. So for listeners who aren't familiar, when we talk about prepared piano, what we mean is that the composer actually gives the piano player instructions to modify the inside, the apparatus where the strings are in the piano, where the strings are struck, And there are objects actually placed in between the strings in specified locations by the composer. And those modifications actually give the piano its timbre, its sound, as well as its tuning that it has throughout the entirety of that particular musical work. This was a technique very popularized by experimental composer John Cage. He's probably the most famous composer to utilize it. But other composers have definitely done it, and Schnitka uses it very effectively in this orchestral work for sure. I mean, you get right, the entire opening is this creepy lullaby-like you know, melody that Tamberley is very uncomfortable and very much sounds not in tune. That's definitely deliberate by Schnitka to kind of set that vocabulary Tamberley and tonally with what, with what he's doing. When the curtain rises on the ballet, it's to the strains of this prepared piano, and it's the villagers dancing around and warning a, a stranger not to go up to the castle. And it's very effective in the mood setting. Well, and another thing, too, that it also sets the tone for, uh, as someone who kind of specializes in studying quarter tonal music, this selection, particularly the two solo violinist parts, they're boatloads of quarter tones. Again, Schnitka kind of saying, oh, you thought that was dissonance? Let me show you what dissonance (laughs) actually is. Um, Really, really, if I had to define the Concerto Grosso number one in a sentence, it would be a redefining of orchestral dissonance for great affect. That's affect with an A. Um, Because you have these minor seconds playing a role, but then we get quarter tonal music which eventually becomes contagious and the entire string orchestra ends up having to play them at some point, the quarter tones. And so this notion that we're kind of leaving behind this very comfortable, beautiful tonal system, Schnicka just kind of says, well, you're going to get that in some parts of this piece, but certainly not all of them. And so it's just, it's kind of redefining a mood in a way that is very unsettling for listeners who don't have much exposure to that. And even listeners who kind of do. Mm. which I think is really brilliant, too. I understand that personally for Schnitka, a lot of his music had a religious overtones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he converted to Christianity and kind of took somewhat of a mystic approach. I would say, though, probably some of the more prevalent ways in which it kind of seeped into his music were through some of the choral works he did, his fourth symphony, actually is a choral symphony. It actually has a solo tenor, solo countertenor part. And toward the end, you actually have a full chamber choir that that comes in, soprano, tenor, bass. And again, that just meant to kind of give an allusion to kind of a spiritual sense of things, bringing in a sense of angelic voices. The countertenor and the tenor, initially when they come in, 
uh, the soloists, they're, they're wordless. It's kind of this angelic neutral syllable. Um, very, very lyrical, very um, kind of mesmerizing, especially if you've never heard a countertenor. They're really fascinating. Just kind of timbrely, like to hear the male voice in that register. It's really fascinating. Um, but yeah, definitely that, that had some impact on his kind of middle and then later compositional styles for sure. Now, talking about his later uh, compositional styles, he did actually get away from the the uh, weird stuff later in his career. And I, I understand a lot of that happened after he started having several strokes. Yeah, his health, especially through the late 80s and through the 90s and to, to his death, um, yeah, it, it was really tough for him. In fact, the Ninth Symphony, um, <laughs> he sort of finished it but the manuscript was barely legible and there were actually multiple composers that made attempts to kind of fortify and codify the working definitive version of the ninth symphony just because it was barely legible like i listened to the eighth symphony again recently and i compared it to listening to like the concerto grosso or the fourth symphony or even some or like his score to the glass harmonica and those moments of dissonance are there but they're very few and far between. Uh, the Eighth Symphony is very much almost meditative in its serenity. It's interesting because one of the defining characteristics of Schnitka is the fact that he takes, he takes instruments and he pushes them to their extreme boundaries in terms of range and technical capabilities. And that is actually still very present in his later works. The, the horn and trumpet parts, oh my stars, for the Eighth Symphony are just ghastly to play in terms of some of the ranges that Schnitka is asking for them. But in terms of just to the listener's ears, it's a much more reserved style. And I think, I think one critic even said of his Ninth Symphony that it was almost like a ghost had written it, a ghost who was already like had put one foot into the great beyond. And so, right, the stroke situation definitely plagued him for, for much of the later years of his life. One of the reasons Tracy chose Schnitka as a composer is because he had such a wide variety of styles. And along with uh, things like the Concerto Grosso, he also had some very melodic film scores. He composed for over 60 films in his career, and many of those are translated to the romantic scenes. Also, uh, the Sweet and the Old style, I believe. Oh, yeah, that. That is such a funny piece. If you've listened to any of Schnitka's other stuff, you listen to that and it's like, have I emerged of a time capsule from, you know, like how many decades slash centuries prior? Like it is such a bizarrely beautiful piece. And yet there, even within that, there are still these random Schnitka like moments. Like there's this moment where there's just this random out of the blue dissonant chord. It just happens. You know, you're listening to this beautiful dance like very tonal, very consonant, and all of a sudden you get this one random little chord here. And it's just like, what, what, is, what is that doing here? But it's to me, that juxtaposed with his more dissonant things, Concerto Grosso number one, his viola concerto, you know, his symphony number one, like that's the beauty of his compositional output is that he can do, he can do all of it. Sweet in the Old Style is actually the first big pas de deux in the second act, mm, uh, where I believe it's the the scene where he's proposing to her, the protagonist is proposing to Dracula's first victim. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a lovely selection. And that's what I really like about the selections that, that Tracy sent me, that you're utilizing. It really 
highlights the breadth and depth of Schnitka's abilities yeah. as a composer, which I think, again, helped to tell a very varied story, right? And that you have these sweet and light moments in addition to, you know, the evil and terror that, that's <laughs> represented by the title character. And so, you know, it's it's like if you've never heard his score to the Glass Harmonica, uh, which, fun fact, is as far as I know, the first animated film to be banned in the Soviet Union, um, <laughs> that that film is on YouTube. You can find it. And it's it's only, I think, 20 minutes or so. It's basically just the animation and his score. At least what I have been able to see on YouTube, there's no there's no dialogue. So his music is the dialogue. And it's very evocative of you know some of his more dissonant works because of the the messaging there. But then but then you have then you have some of his other scores like his Adventures of a Dentist score which is very much uh, more reminiscent of the Sweet and the Old style. You have those dissonance moments at, at times, but the styles he's utilizing there are very much more consonant and and rooted in, in tonality and nature. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we go? To sum up I think Schnitka's use of his self-defined pilot stylistic approach really allowed him to be an effective film score composer and tell stories in his music for both the screen as well as the symphony. And I think it's because of that that he's such an effective choice uh, for this particular production. And the fact that they're using a wide variety of his compositional samplings, I think really benefits to helping to tell this story. Dr. Kandal, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated the opportunity to chat today. That was Dr. Stephen Kandal of the University of St. Francis on the music of Alfred Schnitka. I'd like to thank Tracy and Stephen Kandal for being our guest today. Dracula opens October 20th for four shows, including an 11.30 p.m. showing Friday, October 21st at the Arts United Center. You can purchase tickets by visiting Fort and Valley website, artsticks.org, or calling the box office at 422-4226. Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shaw Productions. Our producers are John Dawkins and Jim Sparrow. And if you'd like to receive notifications of future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. For more on Fort Wayne Ballet's production of Dracula, search our show archives for the 2020 episode entitled Dracula. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout!